Have you ever seen the TV show uh, Undercover Boss? Anybody seen it? Let me see. Have you seen it? A little, a few, yeah? A good number, Undercover Boss. Was it NBC that had that show? I can't remember what network it was. It doesn't really matter. Undercover Boss was a reality TV show, and they took a CEO or an executive, some, some executive from a, a, a company, and they dressed him up or her up and put him in a disguise, and they put him into the company at the entry level to see what it was like to work for their company. And so some examples were they had, um, you know, Diamond Resorts. That guy, he had two episodes uh, where he, he went in, and it just says something with the guy who's the top of a huge resort hotel timeshare chain working right alongside the ladies who are cleaning the rooms. It's a cool prom- premise, right? They had the guy from Waste Management working on trash trucks and being schooled by this rough-and-tumble burly guy. And the rough-and-tumble burly guy, when they take him off camera to ask him, uh, you know, how's this guy doing? He's just, like, besides himself. He can't believe how worthless this guy is <laughs> as, as a worker. It's, it's funny, right? That's kind of what the show was like. But then they have, at the end of the show, the big reveal, where they'll have the guy or the gal and they'll put them back in their executive garb in a, in a room and, and then they'll bring in some of these employees that they worked with along the way. Now, sometimes it was bad news for the employee because sometimes the guy was there and, 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 and the, the people who were supposed to be training him were telling him how to cut corners, how you can get away with stuff, right? Yeah, not a good day when they revealed who this was. But sometimes it was, it, was, it, it was a tearjerker. It would just bring tears to your eyes, tug at your heartstrings, because this guy, his, uh, his life was changed by working alongside some uh, a single mom. There was one in particular, I can't remember the company, but I remember it was like at a baseball, um, one of the baseball teams. Uh, I can't remember, but, but she was an hourly wage worker, a single mom, and she had to work a couple different jobs, and she had to spend a stint in a, in a homeless shelter with her child. Because, uh, you know, life happens and being poor is really hard. If you've never been truly poor, you probably don't understand. But being poor, it's really expensive to be poor. Does that make sense? It's really expensive to be poor. Well, this guy was so moved because he was a loyal employee for, and he, he got to work with her for a while. He cuts her a, a check, a quarter million dollar check to get out of debt to buy a new house. And like she falls off the stool and they had to bring in people to make sure she was okay. Like the paramedics and had to make sure, are you breathing still kind of thing? It was an amazingly powerful moment um, when the big reveal happened and people were made to see who this person really was. That's what I think of when I think of Palm Sunday. The big reveal Because in the Gospel of Mark, which Len just read part of it, in the Gospel of Mark, no fewer than nine times Jesus has so far, by the time we get to what Len just read, he has either hid his identity from people or he has told people explicitly, don't tell anybody. He tells it to demons. He forbids them from saying who he is. He tells it to his disciples. The transfiguration, remember? Peter, James, and John get to see him in all his glory. And on the way down, he says, don't tell anybody about this until 
I come back from the dead. They didn't have a clue what he was talking about, remember? We talked about that scripture last week. But no fewer than nine times, you really, when you read through a book like that from cover to cover, as opposed to just picking out a couple verses and, oh, what does this mean to me? You know, don't do that. But when you read through a book from cover to cover, you really, it's, it's unavoidable. It's so obviously clear that Jesus is trying to keep things, what he's doing here, a secret. Like, he's got a plan, but he doesn't want to let the cat out of the bag too soon. All of that changes on Palm Sunday. All of that changes on Palm Sunday. The mask is going to be taken off. The, the curtain will be raised. And Jesus is going to say to anyone and everyone, This is who I am. He's going to leave no doubts. Now, the way that he does that, though, it's not very clear to us. 21st century Westerners. It's not so obvious to us, but to first century Jews, it would have, he, may have well, he may as well have taken out a billboard ad. It was so obviously clear because what he does is he goes back to the prophet Zechariah. Now, like I told the kids, Israel, they know that there's problems in the world. They have been beaten, battered, and abused for generations, Right? But they'd been promised a king. They'd been, God had promised them he was going to fix all that. He was going to bless them. And he was going to use them to bless the world. They had this hope. And so they had the hope, too, for God's king. God's king was going to come. And that was going to be the guy. When he showed up, Israel, you knew that it was on. You knew that this was it. This was the beginning of the end. This was the coming in of the day of the Lord. This is, what, this is all Zechariah is talking about. And so when Jesus gets on that colt, what he is doing is he is making a hugely important decision because he does it all on purpose. This is not, you you heard Len tell the story, right? He tells the two guys, go into the village ahead. There's going to be a colt tied to a doorpost, right? Get the colt, bring it. And he on purpose rides this colt into the capital city. It's at the time of the Passover, Upwards of a million people, a million people would have been in Jerusalem at this time or or coming in from all the roads. You can see him on the countryside. It said that he was in Bethany. Bethany is two miles away from Jerusalem to the east, and it's up on on a mountain. And so you can see from Bethany everywhere. You could see from where they were, you could see just lines of people as far as the eye could see coming into Jerusalem for the Passover festivities. Okay? Got the picture in your head? And this is the moment that Jesus decides to tell his disciples, go get me a colt. The time has come. Go get me a colt. The time has come. So rather than preach from the Mark text that Len read to you, I'm going to open up the texts from Zechariah. And we're going to see what he was doing all those years before that first Palm Sunday. If you want to turn in your Bibles, I'm going to be in Zechariah Chapter 9, I did not look at my page number. If someone's got a black Bible, holler at me. What page is that on? First person to get there wins a prize, along with the person who wins the raffle for, uh, for posting the invite on social media. What page? 796 in the black Bible. Okay? Here we go. Let's ask God to bless us. Father, please add your blessing to the reading of your word. We pray for me, Lord, the one who preaches. Forgive me of my sin. There's plenty of it there. 
that I need to be forgiven of. And whatever I say, Lord, that's not of you, I pray it would be quickly forgotten. But what I say that is from you, Lord Holy Spirit, won't you lock it into the hearts of the faithful, use it to change us and to grow us and to make us your people. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Let's go to the scriptures. The oracle of the word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach. That land is somewhere around the area of Lebanon today, if you know your Middle Eastern geography. The oracle of the word is against the land of Hadrach, and Damascus is its resting place. You know Damascus, right? Syria. For the Lord has an eye on mankind and on all the tribes of Israel and on Hamath also, which borders on it, Tyre and Sidon, though they are very wise. Tyre has built herself a rampart and heaped up silver like dust and fine gold like the mud of the streets. But behold, the Lord will strip her of her possessions and strike down her power on the sea, and she shall be devoured by fire. Ashkelon shall see it and be afraid. Gaza, too, and shall writhe in anguish. Ekron, also, because its hopes are confounded. The king shall perish from Gaza. Ashkelon shall be uninhabited. A mixed people shall dwell in Ashdod, and I will cut off the pride of Philistia. I will take away its blood from its mouth and its abominations from between its teeth. It too shall be a remnant for our God. It shall be like a clan in Judah, and Ekron shall be like the Jebusites. Then I will encamp at my house as a guard, so that none shall march to and fro. No oppressor shall again march over them. For now I see with my own eyes. We're going to pause Right there, but keep your finger in the place because we'll come back to it. We need to understand what is being described here by Zechariah. Zechariah is prophesying now after Israel has been allowed to return to their homeland from their exile and rebuild Jerusalem. Remember the big picture. I'm going to give it to you really quickly. Some of you know it like the back of your hand. Maybe some of you have never heard it before. I'm going to give you the big picture of Israel here. God chooses Israel and says, from you, this people, I'm going to bring blessing to the entire world. I'm going to choose you to Abram. Remember, descendants as many as the stars in the sky, sand, grains of sand on the seashore, right? I'm going to make Israel special. I'm going to make Israel my people. And so God begins to do this. He gives them a land in which to dwell. He takes them from slavery out of Egypt, gives them a land in which to dwell. And there in that land in Israel, they are supposed to be weird. They are supposed to be weird. In other words, they're supposed to be different from all these other countries. A lot of these names that I just read, some of them you've never heard of before, those are the lands that surround the people of Israel. And Israel, from the beginning, is supposed to be different. They're supposed to be different. In some ways, they're supposed to be crazy liberals as far as social justice is concerned. 
how they treat the foreigner in their midst, how they treat women and children and orphans and widows and the poor. And they're supposed to be crazy conservatives as far as their morality goes, how they keep their religious festivals, how they, how they, how they dress and how they... Um, uh, well, sexuality, for example, they're supposed to be not like the pagan nations uh, gathering for orgies in the bathhouses. No, 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 no. They're very strict. They have a high respect for marriage and for sexuality as well. So see, they're very conservative in a weird way for their culture, and they're very liberal in a weird way for their culture. And then they had a lot of other ceremonial rules sacrificial rules, dietary rules, don't make your clothes out of these sorts of materials kind of rules, can't eat lobster, right? Can't eat pigs, right? All of that was to set them apart. Circumcision, the most obvious one. Circumcision, all of that was to set them apart because they weren't supposed to be like all the other lands who had a king, who loved money, who loved power, they were, they were supposed to have no king, but God was supposed to be their king. But what did Israel do? About from day one, about as soon as they got on the other side of the Red Sea and God destroyed Pharaoh's army, the people started grumbling. They were unhappy. They didn't want to be the people of God. They didn't want that. They wanted to be like all the other nations. They wanted to be like all the other nations. And so again and again, and again, they adopted the other nation's customs. They, had, they took the other nation's daughters and gave their sons to the other nation's for husbands. They took the other nation's gods. They discarded their dietary thing. On and on and on until finally they say, we want a king. God, we want a king, just like all the other nations have a king. And God, well, when human beings are determined to sin, God lets them sin. Do you know that? If you have made up your mind to sin... God is not going to stop you. And that's what Israel had done. They're going to have a king, just like all the other nations. So God, okay, he lets them have a king, and he tells them, you know what kings do? They tax the heck out of you. They take your sons off to war. They take your daughters whenever they want. Okay, he gives them a king. And sure enough, as Israel becomes more and more like all these other nations, what happens? Do you think all these other nations just have tons of respect for Israel, got nothing but love for them, and they're their friends and bosom buddies forever? Oh, no. These other nations, they could care less. Constantly at war. Constantly importing their corrupt practices. Child sacrifice, for example. Israel was forbidden to practice child sacrifice, but their neighbors did that. To appease the gods. Well, guess what we find happening in Israel before long? Can't hardly believe it, can you? Killing their own children. You see the kind of evil that's happening? So what does God do? God says, you know what? You wanted it. Here comes life without me. I'm going to withdraw my blessing. Here comes judgment. So God through a couple of other countries, uh, destroys or allows to be destroyed. No, it destroys. It's the hand of God that's, 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 that's bringing this about. Destroys Israel, destroys Jerusalem, destroys the temple, carries the people off into exile, and for 70 years they live in a foreign land. Until a new king comes and says, 
you can go back. You can worship your God again. You can rebuild your city. You can rebuild your temple. Zechariah, who I'm reading now, he's prophesying, prophesying, he's working from Jerusalem at this point in time. They've just come back. But their city is still a mess. They got no temple. They got no walls. In the ancient world, if you got no walls, you got no economy. I mean, right? Because there's no security there. Who's going to invest in you? That's like me saying I'm going to be my own stock market. Anybody want to invest? We're going to keep, SEC is not going to have anything to do with me. There's not going to be any reporting to any government. Just invest in me and just trust me, it'll go well. Right? Of course not, right? Nobody's going to invest in a city with no walls and with no structure in place. And so here we go, plunder. Here come the enemies. Uh, pestering Jerusalem again, just like they have been for ages and for generations. The same old story, the same old story. And this brings up a question, a little rabbit trail that I want to go down, because it's an important question, because it's something that's bothered me, and it's probably bothered you as well. Is the, is, is, it's the question that, uh, of God as a warrior. Does God really take part in warfare? I mean, has that ever bothered anybody besides me? Anybody ever have qualms? Come on. Seriously? Okay, I feel a few reluctant hands. It's okay, guys. You can be bothered by Scripture sometimes. That's, that's cool. That just means you're reading it, okay? Because sometimes it's confusing. Sometimes it's bothersome. We like to think God is love, right? Mercy, forgiveness, and all that. How can God be... A warrior. How can God be active in warfare? He is, though, all the time throughout Scripture. It's not just an Old Testament God thing either. New Testament has tremendously violent episodes involving Jesus, not just the money changers, but Jesus' own description of the final judgment. The book of Revelation, Jesus comes as a warrior riding a horse with a sword coming out of his mouth. So, yes, I will say God is love, he is mercy, he is slow to anger and abounding in love, but God is absolutely a violent God. God is absolutely a violent God when it comes to evil and injustice. And don't you ever get squeamish about that fact. Now that does not mean that you and I can be violent for God. It's an important distinction. Especially in this day and age, all the talk of holy war and post 9-11 and all that, it's, it's a mess out there. We are not violent for God because we do not see the big picture like God does. We, don't, we think we know what justice is, but we don't know what justice is because we don't know how it all plans out. So don't even go there. But... We are supposed to actually take great comfort in the fact that God will punish evil and injustice. 
If you're interested in more, I can't spend more time talking about this this morning, but if you're interested in more, I would commend to you a new book. It just came out by Tremper Longman, Confronting Old Testament Controversies. His perspective there is very helpful. I will cite one. Uh, I've heard Miroslav Volf quoted a number of times. Miroslav Volf is a theologian at Duke. He's from uh, Croatia, and he experienced the civil war there. He says this about the wrath of God. He says, I used to think that wrath was unworthy of God. Isn't God love? Shouldn't divine love be beyond wrath? God is love, and God loves every person and every creature. That's exactly why God is wrathful against some of them. My last resistance to the idea of God's wrath was a casualty of the war in the former Yugoslavia. According to some estimates, 200,000 people were killed and over 3 million displaced. My villages and my cities were destroyed. My people shelled day in and day out. Some of them were brutalized beyond imagination. And I could not imagine God not being angry. Or think of Rwanda in the last decade of the past century, where 800,000 people were hacked to death in 100 days. How did God react to the carnage? By doting on the perpetrators in a grandfatherly fashion? By refusing to condemn the bloodbath, but instead affirming the perpetrator's basic goodness? Wasn't God fiercely angry with them? Though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of the wrath of God, I came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. God is wrathful because God is love. If we don't understand or if we become squeamish at the idea of a violent God, let us be thankful that we've been spared the evil that exists in this world that so many people have seen up close and personal. Well, you know, a couple generations after Zephaniah, Zechariah's prophecy, came along a guy named Alexander. Some people thought he was pretty great. They named him Alexander the Great. And he was on a war path through, well, the entire known world at the point. But this is interesting. Alexander's war path led down the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, eastern Mediterranean Sea. I'll show you a map in just a second. Uh, All the way to Egypt. And Alexander did just as this passage in Zechariah described that he would do. He obliterated Sidon. And when he got to Tyre, it was a massive port city at the time. Such a cool story. Um, They had moved... Tyre was extremely wealthy. Uh, Go ahead and put the map up. 
So Tyre, where, where did I put my, my laser beam? Tyre is right here. Okay, here's Sidon. So Alexander took care of them. A couple months it took to, to siege Sidon, and then he took care of them. But he got to Tyre, and you see this little spit out there? There's an island. Tyre was extremely wealthy, a port city, uh, and that's why the scripture said they piled up silver like dust. Remember that phrase? They had, built, they had moved their city and most of their inhabitants to an island, and they had massive fortified it with giant walls. And the island was about a kilometer away from the mainland. Alexander, at this point in time, didn't have a navy. Well, how is he going to take Tyre? You know what he did? It took him 11 months. I think it's 11 months. But he, he did put Tyre under siege. How he started is, one by one, carts full of rocks, poured them into the water, and he built a land bridge. Imagine being in Tyre and watching this happening like, day after day, right? And you can't do much about it. Rocks, and they poured rocks into the sea to create a man-made land bridge. This is before the time of Christ, Okay. So this is not like a high-tech, there's no cranes, there's no dump trucks. He built a land bridge that's still there to this day, out there to that island, so that he could roll his catapults and his siege works out there and start bombarding the walls of Tyre. Well, it took so long, he got really mad and really frustrated. And, and so by the time he got into Tyre, he, he, was, he, was, he was tired of them. So, uh, you like that? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but, but also, one of the advantages from Alexander's point of view for him at taking this long was that he acquired a navy, and he got some friends to come over from some other countries and help him out because they were afraid of him, and they wanted to be in his good graces. And so they did end up after, again, I think it's 11 months, maybe seven. Sometimes I get those mixed up. But after a long time, he was able to breach the walls of Tyre and take it over. Well, during the time that he was building this land bridge and, and, and putting Tyre under siege, guess what? He sends a letter to Jerusalem, to the high priest in Jerusalem, asking for help, asking them to send some soldiers. I'm coming your way, guys. You know, it's like, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. You want to send me some help? Maybe I'll go easy on you when I get down there. And the high priest says no. And if reportedly, Alexander was irate. Listen to this. This is from Josephus, the Jewish historian, but it's also found in Jewish wisdom literature. This story. When Alexander was besieging Tyre, he sent a letter to the high priest who lived in Jerusalem requesting to send assistance and to supply his army with provisions. The priest declined to do so because... He had sworn an oath of loyalty to King Darius. This infuriated Alexander, and he determined to besiege and sack Jerusalem as soon as the coastal conquests were behind him. Oh, it was seven, not eleven. There you go. When the seven-month siege of Tyre and the two-month siege of Gaza, Gaza south of Tyre, when they were over, Alexander started for Jerusalem, for the Jerusalem capital. Jadus, the high priest, was terrified, not imagining how he could meet the victorious forces of Alexander and fearing the worst for his people. He therefore ordered the Jews to make sacrifices to God and ask for deliverance from the advancing uh, armies. That night, God spoke to Jadus in his sleep, telling him, take courage. He was to adorn the city with, with wreaths and then open the gates and go out and meet the invaders. 
The people were to be dressed in white garments, and the priests in the robes prescribed by the law. Now Josephus writes this, When Alexander was still far off and saw the multitudes in their white garments, the priest at their head, clothed in linen, and the high priest in a robe of hyacinth blue and gold, wearing on his head the mitre with the golden plate on it, which was inscribed the name of God, he approached, Alexander, approached alone and prostrated himself before the name and first greeted the high priest. Alexander's men were astonished at this. And Parmenia, his second in command, asked why he had bowed down to the Jewish high priest. Alexander replied, It was not before him that I prostrated myself, but the God of whom he has the honor to be high priest. For you see, it was he whom I saw in my sleep dressed as he is now when I was at Deum in in Macedonia. As I was considering with myself how I might become master of Asia, he urged me not to hesitate to cross over confidently, for he himself would lead my army and give over to me the empire of the Persians. Since, therefore, I have beheld no one else in such robes, and on seeing him now I am reminded of the vision and the exhortation, I believe that I have made this expedition under divine guidance, and that I shall defeat Darius and destroy the power of the Persians. Wow, isn't that interesting? Isn't that something? The high priest in his quirky, priesty getup happens to look exactly like the guy who showed up to Alexandria a long time ago in a dream and said, told him what to do. Now, is this story true? Is this exactly how it went down? We can't know for sure, but what we can know is this. We can know Alexander conquered everyone around Jerusalem. Alexander sent letters to Jerusalem and spoke with the high priest. He probably even visited the city, and we know that he did not attack Jerusalem. And we think of Zechariah's prophecy, especially in verse 8. Then I will encamp at my house as guard, so that none shall march to and fro, No oppressor shall march over them, for now I see with my own eyes. The important thing, whether you think that that was Zechariah's prophecy, I don't really care. The Jews of the first century, they did. They believed that that was Zechariah's prophecy, but they also knew that Zechariah's prophecy hadn't fully come to pass because, because, what does it say in the second part of the verse there? No oppressor shall again march over them. Well, who's living in Jerusalem at the time of Jesus? Rome, right? Oppressors. We talked about that in kids' Sunday school today, too. They know about the Revolutionary War and the Redcoats coming in and making themselves at home in people's houses. Rome was worse than that. So they knew they were still waiting. They knew that they were still waiting. And here's where we get to the Palm Sunday portion from Zechariah 9. This is how we know that Jesus knew exactly what he was doing when he got that colt and he headed in. Verse 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. 
I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and, and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and the river to the ends of, from the river to the ends of the earth. Jesus is assuming the role. Jesus is making an incredible claim. I am the one. I am the king of whom Zechariah spoke. And the crowds, they recognized it immediately because they immediately began singing Psalm 118, which talks about this very thing happening. Hosanna, God save. Hosanna, Hosanna. And blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The crowds knew it immediately what Jesus was doing. Now there's a problem. There's a problem because this is the highest moment of tension in the gospel story. If Jesus is the king who brings peace, what is he going to do about Rome? How is he going to fix this problem? Or maybe it's better phrased, what is Rome going to do about him? What is Rome going to do about him? You can read the rest of the story. Many of you already know it. If you don't know, inside a week, inside of one week, those roaring, cheering crowds will have lost interest. Because it wouldn't make sense to them anymore. But you know who wouldn't lose interest? Those religious leaders. They weren't going to lose interest because they were really, really worried that Jesus was going to upset the power structure. That Jesus was going to light a powder keg under Rome. They would really get mad. And then the hammer would really come down. And so they arranged for, for Jesus to get arrested they came up with some trumped-up charges. They never got a conviction. They never got a conviction, but they got permission to put him to death anyways. Some king, eh? This is who Zechariah was talking about? But then something unexplicable happened. Inexplicable happened. Within 20 years of this event, the news of Jesus Christ was known throughout most of all the world. Copies of the Gospels were being written and spread out, and the letters to the churches were being copied and disseminated, and lives were being changed, and people were coming to believe that this really was the guy Zechariah was talking about, because even though the Romans put him to death, he came back. He came back, and as more and more people started to believe that unbelievable truth, you couldn't put the cat back in the bag. The chain reaction had begun, and it's been going on ever since. He really is the king of heaven who has come to bring peace on earth. And we already spoke of the wrath of the violence of God. I'll end with this thought. It's a very important takeaway. I want you to hear me today because you need to know where you stand with God. Where you stand with this Jesus. See, the wrath or the violence of God, it's not like human wrath or human violence because it's always perfect. It's always just. As Miroslav Volf said, reminds us, you want God to be a God of wrath. Now, the disturbing reality, here's where it gets really troubling for us, is when we read we don't even have to read the Bible to know this, but we know that there's violence and evil and selfishness and godlessness inside of me. And if God is perfectly just, he's going to punish that too. 
that separates me from God. The only price I can pay to make good is to die. It's significant. Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a colt, not a war horse. Kings don't ride colts when they're coming for battle. Jesus will come again as judge to bring justice to all the earth, but he has made a way for you this day to be declared not guilty, righteous, perfect, just, just as he is just. You see, that's what he was going to Jerusalem for. God himself said, I will make a way, Adam, so you don't have to die for your sin. I will take it upon myself. I will bear the cost so that you can live forever with me. But this only happens if you let him. Jesus Christ, he, he, he died for the sins of the whole world. But you have to let him. You have to let him have your sin, in other words. That means repent. That means you have to, well, I said it earlier, you have to lament your sin. C.S. Lewis says, there's only two kinds of people at the end of the day. Those kinds of people who say to God, thy will be done. And you know the other part? Those kinds of people to whom God says, I will be done. Come to Jesus today. Tell him you want him to be your king, the Lord of your life. You are sorry for your sin. You want to be forgiven, changed, live for him today, and live with him forever. And this will be the best Easter you will ever have. Father, we are sinners in need of a Savior, and you have told us that you are that Savior. Will we believe it? Is the big question. Will we believe you? To all who would pray this prayer with me, Lord, Give them assurance of salvation, assurance that they are your children and that they will live forever with you. Father, I know you are God, and Jesus, you died for the sin of the world. I am a sinner. Please forgive me of my sin. Cause me to love you. Make me anew, born again, never to die. I love you, my Lord and Savior. Amen.